Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning online and in person at 10.30 a.m. In person, we are at our building on Hill Road. Uh, We pray together. We worship together. We gather together. We study God's word together. Online, we are, of course, here live streaming at faithonhill.com. Audio versions are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. And we are online as well on Wednesday nights in our online small group. And you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. Now, this is our last week looking at the book of Job. Uh, Next week, we will start a study in the book of the Revelation. And I recognize that that's a book that has baggage. And so for some people, they're like, woo, this is exciting. And for other people, like, oh, gosh. You know, I grew up in a church that made a big deal about the end times or about prophecy or whatever, and I I don't want that. What we're going to do is focus on Jesus because the book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he is our focus. He is our central point in studying the entire book. And anything else is just kind of missing the point. So that is our, our goal, and I am excited to discover Jesus as he is now, and as he will come and appear to us in the book of the Revelation. So that's starting next week, and you can read chapter 1 to be ready for it. This week, we are going to finish Job, and we will be looking at Job chapter 42 and a little bit of Job chapter 1. So let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Well, last week, we ended in chapter 42, and Job's friends were instructed to repent offer sacrifices, and Job was instructed to pray for his friends. And it says in verse 7, after the Lord had said these things to Job, oh, sorry, I'm going to move forward. He says in verse 10, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. And all of his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him at his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than he had the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys, 
He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemia, the second daughter Keza, and the third daughter Kerin Hapuch. Nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man, full of years. This is God's word. So I want to close our study of the book of Job by asking this simple question. What is Job all about? What has this all been for? What's been the point? Now, the book ends with the restoration of Job. But I think, if, I'm, if we're being honest, I think that most people, as I've heard the story of Job told, get it wrong. The, the common telling is that, you know, Job was a good man, he was tested by God, he lost everything, but then because he never renounced God, God gave Job everything back. In fact, he gave Job more than everything back. I think that's a false telling. But that is the common tale. I heard that growing up as a kid. I heard that from Christian sources. I've read that from Jewish sources. I've seen that from secular sources talking about the story of Job. But what is Job all about? Well, first of all, let's say that God does restore things. God does restore things in Job's life. And that's important to note. Because God is still restoring people's lives. God is still restoring people's lives. There are people I know personally in my own life who have surrendered their life to Jesus and they have seen restoration. They have seen mental health get into shape. They have seen freedom from addiction and bondage. They have seen broken relationships restored. Sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's a process over years, but God does this restorative work in people's lives. And he does restore Job. Job's wealth is restored. His health is restored. The, the sores and the, the, the you know, wasting away that was going on is, is removed. His health is returned. He lives a long life. He, he has a restoration in his marriage. Now, wait a minute. You might say, Adam, it didn't say anything at the book, end of the book about his marriage. But you have to remember that Job is possibly the most ancient book in the Bible. And it's one of the most ancient written sources that we have in English now today. Job's marriage was talked about at the beginning of the book. Remember, his wife just says, Job, you might as well just curse God and die. She's not standing with him. Job, why don't you die? And then I can move on and try to put my life back together. But then it says that he has more kids. His wife's still there. He's gathering with people. There's celebration and rejoicing. You have to have reconciliation with your wife for all this to kind of make sense. So I know that I'm reading into it a little bit, but I think it's a reasonable assumption that Job had a restored marriage because it had been broken during this time of suffering. He had a restored place in the community. Remember in his back and forth with his three friends, Job reveals that 
his place in the community is gone. He was an elder in the community, and now he, nobody respects him. Nobody cares what he has to say. People openly mock him. And now he has that place restored, so his wealth is restored, his health is restored, his marriage is restored, his place in the community is restored. There is repentance from the community towards him. It says all of his brothers and sisters and all who knew him before came and ate with him and consoled with him. Where were they in the middle of his suffering, in the middle of his uncertainty, in the middle of his trial? They were gone. And they repented. They repented. That this whole thing is an act of repentance and reconciliation. There's kind of a cool thing that happened recently. A church in Eugene that had been part of our group of churches and about 10 years ago left. They just recently had a reconciliation service. Our superintendent went down and some other leaders went down and joined them. And they said, look, we recognize now that we left badly. And that for us to move forward as a healthy church, we need to have repentance and reconciliation towards the Pacific Conference. I've never heard of that happening before. And yet, it happened. I, I shared this a while back about a friend who, who got a call out of nowhere from some, another Christian who had done him great harm and wrong. And he just said, I need to repent. I was wrong to you. And this, this friend of mine was like, I didn't want to answer this guy's call. I saw this. I was like, oh, man, why is he calling me? What, what trouble, is new trouble is he bringing on me? And he, but he picks up the phone, and here's this guy who has done nothing but harm to him over the last year, and he says, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? God is restoring relationships. He's restoring marriages. He's restoring health. There is also, if we're honest, forgiveness on Job's side. There is forgiveness on Job's side. And what that means is this. You don't have people come into your house and eat with you unless you're ready to forgive them. You don't take your wife back unless you're ready to forgive her. You don't have this restoration. You know, those people repented. Those people came and said, Job, we were wrong. Again, their giving him of gifts was an act of repentance. It was like, hey, we did you wrong. Let us try to make this right. Here's some restitution towards you. But he has to forgive. He has to accept. When God told Job, pray for your friends, it wasn't because Job was acting like a Catholic priest or an Orthodox priest as the bridge between people and God, because that's ridiculous. I'm not trying to knock. I, I have had truly wonderful interactions with the Catholic and Orthodox churches in this area. I am not knocking our brothers and sisters in those churches. I 100% disagree with the theology that says that the priest is who you go to to ask for forgiveness from God. We go directly to God in prayer. We are all priests before God. I am not a priest. I'm a pastor. I'm a Bible teacher. I have a role, but I'm not the person that you go to to interact between you and God. They're giving these gifts as repentance. Job is praying for them because God wants Job to forgive. Part of the restoration process, what God restores, isn't just these people saying, man, Job, we were wrong. But he's doing a healing work in Job's heart that involves him forgiving the people who were closest to him who did him the most harm. And then, of course, he has more children, it's highly unusual that the daughters are named, not because they aren't valuable, 
but because in if you know anything about ancient cultures, you did not name the daughters, you named the sons. But here the daughters are named, and they are given equal inheritance with their brothers. Highly unusual, even up until a couple hundred years ago. I mean, that's literally the point of most Jane Austen novels, is, uh, you know, the daughters, the, the whole point of Pride and Prejudice is that the daughters cannot legally inherit. And yet, here Job is giving equal share to his daughters, highly unusual, but it shows the change in his heart. Part of the restoration of God is being restored from the brokenness of this world into the rightness of the kingdom of heaven. That our, our people come out, we, we say, well, people come out of sin and they re repent and they follow Jesus. Sometimes that sin is addiction. Sometimes that sin is rage. Sometimes that sin is bitterness. Sometimes that sin is immorality. But sometimes the sin that we come out of, the brokenness we come out of, is just a philosophy of the world that is broken, an ideology of the world that is broken, and we turn away from conservatism, liberalism. Uh, we turn away from this philosophy, from humanism, from secularism. We turn away from vague deism, and we say, we know that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we now turn away from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdoms of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is where we want to be. All of these things come about as God is restoring Job. But remember I said a minute ago, the point of the book of Job is not that here was Job, he was a good man, God put him through a great testing, he never renounced God, and so then God gave him, you know, double what he had before, blessed him twice as much. But that's not the point. New life does not make old trauma disappear. There will come a day Bible says that there will come a day where God will wipe every tear from every eye and the former things will be remembered no more. There will come a day where the scars aren't just healed, but they're removed. There will come a day when the, the traumas of this world are removed. I believe that. But it's not today. Healing, healing and health and restoration don't make the old trauma go away. One of the most horrible things that I hear is that God gave Job everything back. He didn't give everything back. What God did not restore, Job didn't get the children that died back. He had children that he loved, that he cared about, and they died. They aren't back. I, I've never lost a child, thank God. But I've lost. I've lost people close to me. And I have two dads. My dad, Jim, and my dad, Brian. And biologically, I am the son of Jim Dalhannock. But in every other way, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, I am also the son of Brian Burkhart. You see, my dad died when I was 13. From cancer. And the Lord brought a wonderful, godly man into our lives. Out of nowhere. Total blessing from God. And my mom remarried. And you know what? There was just, from the word go, there was never a question. Brian's my dad. And I have a hard time explaining this to people in, in a like succinct way. You know, yes, he is my stepdad, and I use those words uh, to explain kind of the legal and maybe biological connections. 
Uh, but I don't like those terms. I don't like this idea that, that he's somehow lesser and not my dad. In fact, he's been my dad longer than my father Jim was alive. So, you know, for the last, you know, I was 13 when my dad died, right? And then, you know, what is it, the last over 20, was it 25 years, something like that? So, so for a lot longer, my, my dad, Brian, has been my dad. Just because Brian is my dad now, it doesn't mean that I didn't lose my dad, Jim. That, that the, the sadness I get sometimes, the happiness, too, that I get sometimes, thinking about my dad, missing him, wishing I had known him in my high school years, wishing I had known him as, a, as an adult, wishing he had met my kids, all of that is true. So I can have this great love and appreciation and thankfulness and rejoicing in what God did in restoring and bringing a new father into my life. And I, I love equally as I loved my dad, Jim. And it doesn't take away the hurt that was losing him. I know of another family who lost their, their young daughter, tragically. And the same week they found out that they were pregnant, their, their, their son that was born nine months later was rejoicing, is loved, but does not replace the daughter that they lost at a young age in a tragic way. There is no replacing one with the other. And I guarantee some fool said, oh, isn't it great that the Lord has replaced what was lost? I guarantee somebody said that. Shame on them. And this is the problem with our understanding or our lack of understanding about grief, about pain, about trauma, is that restoration, new life, does not always fix and heal everything. The scar might still be visible. The limp might be there your whole life. The missing limb doesn't grow back. Job did not get everything back. And the people who say that, I, I believe, I hope, I trust their well-meaning. I think that whoever said, you know, well, you, the Lord has replaced your daughter with your son, whoever has said that, and I guarantee somebody has. I, I like to think that they're well-meaning. It's like the person who, who has some close family member, best friend, somebody dies, and then they say, man, I know how that is. I just, you know... My cat died last week. I, I think people want to sympathize, want to be helpful, want to speak words of comfort or hope, not realizing that these are painful words, that these are words that do not help. Those who have not experienced great loss, great tragedy, do not understand. But those of us who have do. Job is not the story of a man who lost everything, was faithful to God, and then got everything back. And if nothing else, if all that we come out of this with is an understanding that that narrative is false, then I think that's a positive. That's a win. But what is the book of Job about? I'm going to tell you. This is what I think. The book of Job might not actually be about Job. It might not be. Remember chapter 1. In chapter 1, Satan comes to God and says the only reason 
that Job worships you, that Job keeps your commands, that Job honors your name, is because he's had it easy. Now remember we said at the beginning, that's a lie, because Satan's a liar. There are people who have never had it easy, who have not been handed everything, and who have been faithful to God, have kept his commands, have honored his name, even through great suffering, pain, trial, persecution. So just because Job has not experienced those things, doesn't mean that that's the only reason that he follows God. In fact, our Lord Jesus said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So in many ways, how pious and holy and devout that Job was before his trial is astonishing. It is. But what if it wasn't about Job? What if, now bear with me, and I'm on theologically shaky ground here, just so you know, if any of my teachers from Bible college or professors from my graduate program uh, heard what I'm about to say, they, they might go, what are you talking about there, kid? Follow me on this, though. We have zero evidence, zero evidence that anyone other than humanity can be redeemed. This is something that gets talked about in Bible colleges, in seminaries. You know, could the fallen angels repent and return to God? We have zero evidence for that. Jesus didn't go and die for the fallen angels. Jesus didn't go and die for, for this or that. He came and died for the world, humanity, whom God created in his own image. As far as we know, the, the, the angels, the the demons, they were not created in the image of God. We, we, we have no indication that that's the case. And to say otherwise is just speculation. But what if this whole thing is about trying to get at Satan? And I don't mean like an attacking, I mean like a come back, repent. What if... What you have gone through wasn't about you, it was about the people watching. What if a conversation you're having, this is something I think about a lot. There have been times in my life where I have had the opportunity to have a gospel conversation with a non-believer, with someone who is not a Christian. And I have had a back and forth and a discourse and a dialogue, and I've explained the good news of Jesus. I've explained what I believe, what I've experienced, what I know to be true. And they've responded, they've asked questions, they've pushed back. And then at the end, we have walked away. And that person just says, yeah, I don't have any time for this. But there was somebody else, sometimes multiple other people. And I have at times turned to them and said, what do you think about what we just said? I, I remember the first time I did it, because it's the first time, right? But I was in Russia, like over 20 years ago. And I, I, it was the first time I can remember, you know, preaching the gospel, quote unquote. And I remember sharing, and I was going back and forth with this one fellow, but a bunch of people there spoke English. And so as I was talking with them back and forth, back and forth, they were like, ah. But I looked at their friends, and I said, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with what we just talked about? Because other people are watching. Other people are, are observing what is going on in our life. What if your trial isn't about you? Recently, a couple years ago, uh, I heard that uh, somebody I knew way back in the day that their father had passed. 
And, and I was sad for, for my old friend. I've, I know what it's like to lose a father. But I had a moment of rejoicing in my heart, and here's why. Because that man's father professed faith in Jesus after the death of my dad because of the testimony of my dad's life. There were people at my dad's funeral who raised their hand and said, I want to follow Jesus. There, there were people at my, because of my dad's death who saw the gospel lived out. And, you know, I'm a preacher. You might think, oh, your dad was a big talker, right? No, my dad liked the background. He was quiet. He would have hated doing what I do. But as he lived his life, going through multiple cancers, going through suffering, people saw the genuineness of his faith lived out and responded. And I know of people who became Christians because of my dad's suffering and my family's suffering. What if that was the whole point? Was that God said, I'm going to bring the family, my family, through a horrific trial, a horrific ordeal, so that these people might come to faith. Somebody once told me, everybody likes to say that they're a servant of God until somebody treats them like a servant. I'm going to throw this idea out. The main point of the book of Job is not even about suffering. It's about agency. It's about control. It's about do I get to choose my trial or do I truly live a life that is surrendered to God? If I say, Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. You are my Lord. I am your servant. Do with me whatever you want. And then he does that. And he doesn't ask our permission and he doesn't tell us ahead of time. He says, you've given your life to me. Did we really mean it? Are we really surrendered? Have we really died to ourselves? It's this old Christian phrase that they used to say, and it's not about suicide or it's not about like bad self-image, but it's this idea of saying, I have this plan for my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live as if that old person is dead, that is gone, and my new person in Jesus is how I live now. Do I truly live a surrendered life? God didn't ask Job's permission. Here's Job, who probably would have said, if somebody had said to him before all this stuff happened, Job, are you the servant of, of Yahweh? Are you the servant of the Lord? Are you the servant of the God of the Bible? And had he known what the Bible was, he would have said, yes. Then God says, okay, you're my servant. This is going to be the road you will walk. And God is the one in the driver's seat. The book of Job is this central question of control and agency. Where Job succeeds is at the beginning of the book when his wealth is stolen, his livestock taken, his children die, his health deteriorating, his wife turning on him, and he says, I didn't deserve the good things that God gave me, but I took them. Should I now reject the bad things that he gives me. He's like, I, didn't, I don't think I deserve these bad things either. But you know what? I didn't deserve the good things. Whether the Lord slays me or not, the name of the Lord be, be praised. Incidentally, my dad quoted those verses to me Easter morning 
the day after we found out that he was going to die. That was Job's position then. But there's some, the, the Bible in the book of Romans talks about us living as living sacrifices, meaning our lives are, are sacrificed to God as an offering of praise and worship and thanks for all that Jesus did for us on the cross. But the thing about living sacrifices is we like to get off the table. We, we like to move off the altar. We, we like to take things back. We want to take control back. What if the whole point of the book of Job is this? It's not about suffering. People are going to suffer no matter what. We live in a broken world. There is sickness. There is pain. There is death. There is evil. There is backstabbing. There's betrayal. That's going to happen no matter what. What if the whole point of the book isn't about suffering? What if the whole point of the book is, are we truly surrendered to God? Have we truly said, Lord, whatever you want, thy will be done? Or, deep down, are we like Job where he starts to take it back and he says, you know what? I didn't deserve this. Why is God doing this? God can explain himself to me. I'm taking back control. It's no longer your will be done, Lord. It becomes my will be done all over again. That was where Job failed. So I'm just going to suggest this. First of all, the book of Job shows that God is good no matter what. The book of Job shows that God is doing restoring works in people's lives, even in times when it doesn't look like it. But the main point of the book of Job is asking this question, is God in charge or do we demand control of our lives? At the end of the book, Job returns to that place of surrender. And he says, I've spoken, but I will speak no more. I've heard of you, but now I've seen you. Right now in Kentucky, there is a revival happening. Young people and old people are returning to that place of surrender. And my cynical mind wants to discount it, but I keep hearing and hearing and hearing how people are praying, Lord, teach me to die to myself. Lord, teach me to surrender more to you. Lord, help me to give up my control and give it over to you. I pray that that revival takes place in the hearts of all of us. Starting with those who do not believe, to surrender their lives to God, to give up the rebellion, to say, Lord, heal me. Those of us who do believe, Lord, keep me in that place of living sacrifice so that I will not turn like Job did and start trying to take control back, but I will choose to remain surrendered to you. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Love eclipses my despair